Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. It's an Olympic year now! Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society the Olympic Games is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by the lovely Allison Brown. Hello, Allison. How are you today? Hello. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Did you have good holidays? I had a very nice holiday. How about Excellent. you? They were lovely. They were lovely. And you know, you know what the best part of the New Year is? What? It's an Olympic year now. It's an Olympic year now. I'm so excited. I know. The, like the weeks are, are ticking off faster than I can even imagine. Yes. Uh, you know what's cool though? Did you see that uh, North Korea opened up communication with South Korea? Yeah. Isn't that, that exciting? Me, I took a sort of deep breath of relief saying, okay, we're going to get through this. Never mind that, you know, we're not going to be murdered in a fury of nuclear annihilation but the olympics are going to go off i think okay there you go <laughs> priorities yes, yes so that made me very happy too so i'm i'm hopeful that talks can continue and even beyond the olympics that yes, uh, we can we can see some peace out of this but it's it's very nice to see that ray of hope and that's that's something i think that the olympics brings i agree know? that's the olympic spirit there you go I know I'm super excited every episode, but I'm like really super excited today because we are talking about biathlon. And I got to say, I think biathlon might be my favorite winter Olympic sport. Really? Yes. And, and you know, I think it's because that is the sport I went to see in Salt Lake. And Oh, that's right. Yeah. So when I went to Salt Lake to watch the 2002 Olympics, it was on a whim. Two weeks beforehand, there was a story on NPR saying, hey, there's still plenty of tickets left and they're kind of cheap. So I said, oh, what what do they got? And biathlon was like 20 or 27 bucks. I'm like, are you kidding me? You, for 20 bucks, you can go see biathlon? And I can't tell you how exciting this sport is. And it is so much fun to watch. It is so hard. But as we'll find out in our interview today, it's not always a sure shot. It's a race. But once you get to the shooting bit, any, it's anybody's game. Yes. If you mess, you could go. You could be at the top and go down to the bottom in a heartbeat. And you're in the stadium and people come in and shoot and you're like, every time somebody gets a shot right, the whole stadium just explodes with, yeah, yeah. And it's just, it was, it was so much fun to watch. And it's a really tough sport. I have read that it's one of the sweatiest sports in the Olympics where the Olympians <laughs> produce the most sweat. And uh, huh. some, I think that was a study done around the 2002 games. We've got thankfully it's outside and they you can't smell them. <laughs> but today we are talking with American Olympian Claire Egan. Claire is 30 years old. She started off as a track and field and cross country runner, but then she got into cross country skiing. And then she ended up switching over to biathlon in 2013, and now she's just made the Olympic team for the for the U.S., so she's going to her first Olympics. Our correspondent, Ben Jackson, sat down with Claire, and 
here's their conversation. Let's start with what what is biathlon and why is this something that people are going to want to watch in February? Why are they going to want to set their DVR to see it? Okay. Biathlon is the winter Olympic sport that combines cross-country skiing and riflery, rifle shooting. And it is an extremely popular sport in Europe. In fact, it's the number one most watched winter sport um, when you add up all of the live spectators as well as TV audiences in Europe. Um, And that is because it's a super exciting sport. If you think about cross-country skiing, that sort of thing, like a running race, most people have seen a running race where it's exciting, you know, whoever crosses the finish line first wins, and that's very exciting. But with biathlon, you have this added element of shooting, which results in the person who's leading the race can be sent to the back at any point, um, because when you miss on the shooting range, you either have to do a 150-meter penalty loop, which takes about 23 to 25 seconds, or you get a one-minute time penalty, depending on the format of the race. So both of those penalties are enormous, of course, in a, in a race that will be eventually won by, you know, probably mere seconds. So when you're watching a biathlon race, you constantly see the leaders changing and the people at the front, you know, if they if they hit all their targets, then they can stay there. But if not, then they're going to fall behind. So biathlon is full of uh, moments that feel like hitting a, the game-winning point in basketball or the the winning putt in a golf tournament or a field goal in football, things like that, where it's the pressure is on. You have to hit. That's what it's. That's what every biathlon race is like, and and that's why uh, European fans love it, and I think that's why Americans will love it. How did these two sports? You know, I mean, there's there's shooting. That's a sport in and of itself. Cross country racing. That sort of makes sense. Do you, how did these things kind of come together? The background of biathlon is in border security in Europe. So. Um, I think the Russians and the Scandinavians have a bit of a argument over vented bathlon first, but in any event, it was people who live in a wintry place and need to defend their borders. Um, and in fact, even in the United States, we have a, a National Guard biathlon team in the United States that people may not be aware of. And there's also the 10th Mountain Division in the U.S. military that is trained in alpine warfare. And so biathlon sort of grew out of this idea that people might have to ski and shoot at some point. Yeah, exactly. So some people uh, have the misconception that it comes from a background of um, skiing and hunting for food, but that's not the case. It comes from a background of perhaps needing to ski and shoot uh, to protect your country. And as as somebody's watching this, is there anything that isn't obvious that, that they should be keeping in mind as they're watching you guys sort of do this race? Oh, my gosh. There's there's a lot. Some that is often um, tricky for people who haven't seen Bathlon before is that not all of our races are what we call mass start format. In fact, most of our races are not. So when you see uh, a race on the track, um, which most everybody is familiar with, all the competitors are at the same time and whoever crosses the finish line first wins. But in biathlon, because we're limited by having only 30 points on the riflery range, um, if we have a mass start race, only 30 people can compete. And there will be a mass start in the Olympics for the top 30 men or top 30 women. Um, But the rest of our races have an individual start format or a pursuit format. And in the individual start format, um, it's if you've seen a cycling time trial, it's the same idea, or even downhill skiing, where people go one, they start one at a time, 
and you're racing the clock. So that's how our individual start format works, which you'll see in the sprint, which is our shortest event, as well as the individual, which is our longest event. The pursuit will follow the sprint. So we'll do a sprint one day and everyone can participate in that. And it is an individual start format. So we will go one at a time, race the clock. And the top 60 finishers, meaning the top 60 people who have the fastest times from the sprint, qualify for the pursuit. And the pursuit will take place the next day. And how far are these? um, The sprint is 7.5K for women and 10K for men, I believe. And the pursuit is 10K for women and 12.5K for men. Um, The start order for the pursuit is based on the finish order from the sprint. So let's say I win the sprint and my teammate comes in second in the sprint, four seconds behind me. In the pursuit, that means I will start first and my teammate starts four seconds back. So basically, I get a four-second head start. And then the 60 best finishers from the sprint will all start in that way and usually ends up that all 60 people start within about two minutes and the first person to the finish line wins. So are uh, some of our different formats, and sometimes that can be confusing for new watchers. I'm sure that the announcers um, will explain everything, and once you um, once you have a, a general idea of what's going on, it's very easy and exciting to follow. As as you're out there doing this, I mean you're skiing right and you're trying to go really fast and then you Mm -hmm. have to stop and shoot and you have Mm -hmm. to kind of hold really still it would seem to be how does that all kind of fit together i mean can you train for that how does that work a lot of people ask me how i train to get my heart rate to go down while i'm shooting and the answer to that question is i don't We are only on the shooting mat for about 30 seconds. We race to the shooting mat. We take our rifles off, load our magazine that has five bullets, shoot those five bullets, and leave all in about 30 seconds because that's part of the race. We're on the clock. So our shooting happens really fast, and we're only human. We come into the mat with a really high heart rate, and in 30 seconds, your heart rate is barely going to drop. So... What we actually train to do is just to deal with that. And we just rehearse basically over and over again, coming into the shooting range and executing this shooting process and trying to do it the same, whether it's an easy workout or a hard workout or a high pressure race. So the dichotomy between the skiing and shooting is really the biggest challenge for a biathlete. Um, not only because you are physically switching from doing one thing to the polar opposite, but you also have to switch gears mentally. So when you're skiing, you are absolutely trying as hard as you can and pushing and having grit and um, that desire and drive to go faster and win is extremely powerful and you want to harness that as best you can. And then you, when you come into the shooting range, you have to let go of all of that because trying to hit the target, you know, giving it special, giving that last shot, you know, special attention or trying extra hard, that does not work. What works is treating all of your shots as if you're just taking them on an easy afternoon practice in July. When you try to do something special because it's the big race, it's the big Olympic race in February, that does not help. So you have to switch your brain from this hyper overdrive that is powerful in skiing to a very zen-like, calm, relaxed mentality that is conducive to good shooting. So you need to be calm while your heart rate is hammering at you know, yeah. 180 or whatever it is. Right. Yeah. So it's it's um it sounds impossible, and that's 
as it almost is. <laughs> and that's why people should watch because it is absolutely incredible to see people racing into the shooting mat and then switching gears into shooting and easily hitting all their targets and then leaving again. I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's, it's, and it's fun to watch. And so beyond like just doing it over and over and are there other mm -hmm. ways that you kind of prepare your brain for, okay, I'm skiing, now I'm shooting and I'm switching gears in my brain. How do you keep the the gearbox going? <laughs> um, it's really challenging. And I think anyone who's done a race of any kind can tell you that it's, you're not really necessarily being straight when you're in the middle um, of a race. So, but we have a lot of tools that we rely on to uh, keep our heads on straight for the shooting. And some of that is making sure you have good preparation. So, for example, I always go out and ski the course before the race and I pick a certain checkpoint where I'm going to switch from thinking about my skiing to thinking about shooting. So, you know, I pass this flagpole or whatever it may be, and that's when I'm going to, you know, start to focus on my, on my breathing, slowing my breathing down, um, start checking the wind and the wind flags on the range, um, and, and preparing for my shooting. So having that good preparation on the way into the range is really important. And then I also find that having just a couple, I mean, maybe three at most key, um, keywords or key concepts to focus on during my shooting is really helpful. So maybe I come in and I'm thinking position and I'm setting my position and then I'm working on just having a good trigger squeeze. And I'm thinking about that, just having some really simple cues like that helps me both to keep keep some lucidity in the in the middle of the race and also to focus on the process of shooting rather than having some thoughts about the outcome like oh i i better hit this one or shoot i hope i don't miss this one those kind of things can really get in the way of good shooting so we've talked about the the concept and the act of shooting but let's talk for a second about the nuts and bolts what kind of rifle are you shooting and what kind of target by athletes use a 22 long rifle um it looks similar to anything if you did scouting as a kid or summer camp riflery it's a very simple rifle the bullets are 22 caliber bullets so that's you know the a little bit smaller than your pinky finger probably and in the races we shoot five black targets they're black circles and we shoot both prone and standing in biathlon. So prone is lying down and standing on a shooting mat. So in each race, we have we shoot once prone and once standing or twice prone and twice standing, depending on the format. And each time you shoot, you ski into a mat that corresponds with a target. So there's 30 shooting points, so 30 mats and, and 30 corresponding targets. And you come in and you arrive at your mat, and that's when you take your rifle off, and that is when you load your rifle. So there's no skiing around with a loaded rifle. You're only ever loading your rifle when you're at the range on your mat. And our prone targets are um, about the size of an Oreo and our standing targets are about the size of a CD. Um, and how and far so away are they? They're 50 meters away. Okay. So you have five bullets in a magazine and you load that magazine and then you have five bullets for five targets. So when you hit the target, it turns from black to white. So it's very easy for you to tell that you hit. And it's also very easy for all the spectators to see whether they're in the stadium live at the range or whether they're on watching on TV. You'll see that on TV when the target is hit and it turns from black to white. Of course, if you miss, it stays black. So you'll see people leaving the range with a fully white target. We call that a clean target. If they have shot clean, they've hit 
all five of the black circles, they've turned white. That means that skier can head right back out on the course with no time penalty. But you'll see a lot of targets that have one black target showing or two or three or four or in a total disaster. When you've dirtied your target, you'll see all five black targets remaining. And those people will have to do a corresponding number of penalty loops in the stadium before continuing out on the course. Or in our longest race, the individual, they don't do the penalty loop, but rather have a one-minute time penalty added immediately to their time. And that's a lot of time when you're when you're skating for skiing. For <laughs> yeah, time, it's it? it's really a lot of time. So the penalty loop takes 23 seconds or so, and a one-minute time penalty in the individual format is, of course, also really devastating. So our races are won by seconds, sometimes less. And, um, for example, our sprint, usually the top 60 people are all within about two minutes. So time is of the essence, and it really hurts to go into that penalty loop. And the skiing part of this, then, you guys aren't doing sort of the Nordic track kind of cross-country skiing, right? You're doing the, the skate skiing? Yeah, so there are two kinds of cross-country skiing. Most people are familiar with what we call classic style, which looks like what you would see on a Nordic track machine, or you can picture someone kind of bounding through the snow. That's the classic style, striding and gliding. Whereas what we do in biathlon is skate skiing and we do exclusively skate skiing although all of us have a background in cross-country skiing and know how to do both classic and skate and we train sometimes classic but all of our races are skate and skate skiing looks like skating on ice or roller skating with poles that's the only difference is that you have the poles as you sort of think about this sport then is it tougher to train the skiing or tougher to train the shooting or tougher to put them together? <laughs> so when we train for cross-country skiing, we do all the same stuff that people who are competing in cross-country skiing do. We do all the same training. So my background was in cross-country skiing. And when I started doing biathlon, I, at some point, pretty early on, I had this realization like, hey, wait a second, like, why is why is my day all of a sudden so full? And I realized that, oh, it's because I'm training for two sports now. Because it's not like you take away any part of the ski training. No, you're still doing all the ski training that you used to do. Plus, now we're doing shooting training as well. So training for both sports is in itself a big challenge. It's so time-consuming. We train more than anybody else I know. And that it's, you know, it's very tiring. Um, I wouldn't say that one is easier than the other. Of, I mean, of course, physically, shooting is much easier than training for skiing, but mentally it's so difficult. So, I mean, that's the, that's the beauty of the sport and that's the challenge of the sport is that it combines these two totally different things and requires you to really exercise both your peak physical and mental capacities all in one competition. And are you training all year round or only when it's snowy? We train from the start. We, we start training May 1st every year. So our competition season goes from late November to late March. And then we have some time to rest and time off in April. And then we start training again May 1st. And all summer long, we do a combination of different cardio workouts, whether rowing, biking, running, roller skiing, of course, is, is our number one way of training. Um, roller skiing is sort of like inline skating, but with ski poles and you're wearing your regular cross-country ski boot. Um, we do a ton of roller skiing and shooting, of course, we can do year-round. We go to the gym, and we do have some on-snow training camps in places in the world that do have snow in um, our summer months. So we we do train all summer, and it's we're lucky that we can do a lot of different activities in the summer, but mainly we focus on roller skiing and shooting, and then come wintertime, of course, we're almost exclusively skiing and shooting. How much does the cold factor in? 
Well, I just trained today in zero degrees Fahrenheit. Cold, biathlon is a very cold sport. (laughs) Um, When I first started doing it, I mean, I had already done cross-country skiing for 15 years, and even I was a little bit alarmed by how cold it was because you, you cannot wear big, heavy jackets or big, heavy gloves in order to do the shooting. You have to wear really small gloves, actually, in order to be able to feel the trigger but the catch 22 is that you also need to not have numb fingers in order to be able to feel the trigger so (laughs) there are a lot of a lot of tricks that I've learned over the years and that my teammates who've been doing biathlon longer than I have have taught me in order to keep ourselves warm but still dressed in a in a light way that allows us to ski and shoot any examples you give us sure um Well, the biggest one is to just keep your core temperature warm. So we're always really dressing a lot more warmly than I might if I were just going out for a ski. We also have a couple different tricks for keeping our fingers warm. Wearing glove liners, like really small, thin gloves under my other gloves. I've also cut a pair of old wool socks right around the ankle, and then I've taken the part that would go over my calf and I've put it over my wrist so I have these kind of wrist warmers so if there's no gap between my gloves and my shirt or my jacket in a real cold situation I've put hand warmers uh in the in the backs of my gloves sort of at the you know behind my hand so that it's not in the way of my the palm of my hand you know touching the rifle or um my trigger finger but it's still getting some heat to my hands. Can you do that competition or do you generally just rely on the racing to keep you warm? I have done all of those things in competition. I mean, you ha- you cannot have numb fingers and shoot. So you, you really need to find ways to stay warm. And even though typically, you know, you're, you can warm up your body racing pretty easily, but keeping those extremities, especially your fingers warm, is um, an extra challenge in biathlon, and that's why we have to have a lot of different tricks to keep our fingers warm. You said you had a background in cross-country skiing. Did you always do shooting, or did somebody come up to you one day and say, hey, you know what you ought to do? <laughs> um, the, the latter. So I grew up in Maine and I was a runner and a cross country skier and I did not do biathlon until I was 25 years old. I was racing for a post-collegiate elite team based in Vermont called the Craftsbury Green Racing Project. And two of my teammates in Craftsbury had followed a similar path where they were cross country skiers and then got into biathlon after college. And I sort of followed in their footsteps. And and one of the U.S. biathlon coaches, Algis Shalna, who's a, a regional development coach now for U.S. biathlon, he offered to teach me how to shoot. And I was excited about that idea. And I'm very happy I did. It sounds like it's a very different kind of shooting than, say, what we might have seen in Rio, where they all kind of line up and they steady themselves and whatever. Now you're doing something that is a whole different kind of shooting. Yes and no. So the I've I don't know too much about precision shooting, competition shooting, but I have seen some and actually Matt Emmons, who's an Olympic gold medalist shooter from the US, works with our team as a consultant, as a shooting coach. Oh, okay. And some things are really different. Um, about shooting in biathlon than competition shooting. I mean, the most obvious being that we are shooting under physical stress and we're shooting really quickly. So we are coming in, shooting five shots and leaving in 30 seconds and often faster than that. Whereas in competition shooting, um, it's a much slower, deliberate process. It's requires way more patience and attention span than I could ever, ever have. Um, So that's the biggest difference. However, it's still shooting. So the, the focus on the fine process of shooting is what we need to do. And it's what competition shooters need to do. I would say the mental part, I think, is very similar between competition shooting 
and shooting in biathlon. You mentioned something a little bit earlier that I thought was interesting. You, you talked about controlling your breath. So you mentioned that you can't control your heart rate, particularly in that time mm-hmm. period. But but what about controlling your breathing? Is that yeah. something that you guys work on? E- yes. So it's true that we can't really control our heart rates. I mean, you can't sit and think, okay, I want to, I want my heart to beat slower now. Um, but you can control your breathing. And so when I'm coming into shoot, I start taking really long, deep, slow breaths as I approach the mat. Um, and then I have a certain breathing cadence that I use between each shot while I'm shooting. So focusing on that and um, having a calm breath and a steady breath, that is something that that we work on and something that's helpful for calm and steady shooting. As you go around and you do these these competitions, you're hauling a lot of gear, it sounds like, and <laughs> yeah. you've got rifles that you're trying to take across borders and, and all of that. Has Is that ever a complication? Is that ever an issue? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Traveling with a rifle is about as complicated as you would expect. Um, actually, in the United States, we have extremely low regulation relative to anywhere else I've traveled in the world. But it's still complicated. Um, In the U.S., to travel with a rifle, you need to pack your rifle in a locked hard case. And then you basically check it like a suitcase, um, but it has to be inspected and go through a special security clearance. Traveling internationally is much more complicated. The permit from the, um, the country you're going to and... For example, in Germany, which is where we often fly into due to its central location in Europe, we we have to do paperwork ahead of time so that when we arrive, the German police know that we're arriving on that specific day on that specific flight and they meet the aircraft and take the rifle directly from the aircraft to customs so that we don't even have it in our position until after we've cleared it through customs. It is complicated and it has definitely resulted in many, many, many missed flights over the years. Wow. So you've got skis, ski poles, rifles, your regular gear. That's that's a lot of luggage. We do have a lot of luggage. um, But one time I saw the U.S. canoe kayak folks in the airport and I realized that it's not so bad after (laughs) all having biathlon equipment. (laughs) And what's the path like for Olympic qualification? I mean, if there's so many people competing, especially in places like Europe, it sounds like it's it's not an easy road. I mean, no Olympic qualification is an easy road, but mm-hmm. well, for for the for the U.S. team, we have we had three different phases of qualification for this Olympic cycle. The first phase was pre-qualification. Uh, last year, which uh, two people achieved by winning medals at world championships. And the next phase was what was the November and December World Cup qualification. So we have World Cups, um, which are big events that happen over the course of of every winter in different countries, usually in Europe, um, sometimes Asia, sometimes North America, at which you compete as a country, and it's it's really not uh, not unlike the Olympics. It's all the best athletes from all the best countries in the world compete on the World Cup all winter long, every winter. So we're lucky in that sense. We have a lot of experience competing with our with our international competition. We have some World Cups in November and December, and. Two more people qualified for the Olympic team based on uh, three more people, two men and myself um, qualified for the Olympics based on results at those World Cups. And then the rest of the team will be filled out in the next couple of weeks here based on their racing at a uh, the second tier biathlon circuit, which is called the IBU Cup. And they will race to get those last spots on our Olympic team. So we're, we're lucky. We don't have, we don't have like what track and field or swimming has where you have to show up on one day and get top three that 
really just wouldn't even work in biathlon. Biathlon is such a volatile sport. Um, no one always wins. I mean, it's we have there's different people on the podium every weekend in biathlon, and so it's it's nice that we have more time and more more races to sort of see a, an average performance in order to to clinch those spots. And you talked about the popularity around Europe. Do you think that this is a sport that will gain popularity in the United States over time? Oh, I hope so. Everyone who watches it falls in love with it. It's so exciting. And I think the way the World Cup works, um, you know, having it every weekend all winter, you can really get to know the different competitors from the different countries. It has the same kind of appeal, I think, as, like, the NFL, where you get to know all the different players from the different teams and you see them every week, you know, for 10 weeks or whatever it is. And biathlon has that, too, um, in the World Cup every winter. So I really think it's a sport that people can um, get excited about and follow every year. You know, you don't have to wait every four years to see biathlon. You can watch it every weekend all winter long. In fact, you can watch it live online from the U.S. all winter long um, on the Olympic Channel website, www.olympicchannel.com. So I recommend that people do that. And I mean, you can start watching it now. You don't have to wait for the Olympics. We have three World Cups before the Olympics even in January. So of course, I think Americans could really fall in love with it um, if they are exposed to it. I think, you know, the places in Europe where it is most popular are snowy, wintry places. And I think that that will probably be true in the U.S. I mean, people who live in the snow belt are perhaps more likely to get excited about cross-country skiing. But I think anyone could rally behind biathlon. It's so exciting. And the, the quality of the TV coverage is, is amazing. And that's the same coverage that you that you see online. So... I recommend that people watch that. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out. And, and I will definitely be be watching both before and during the Olympics. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. Um, You're welcome. And, and good luck with everything. And, and I hope that we'll be able to catch up again soon. Well, thank you so much for that, Ben. And Claire, thank you for talking with us. You can follow Claire on Instagram. She is Claire Egan by Athlete, and Claire is C L A R E E G A N by Athlete. On Twitter, she's by Athlete Egan, and her website is ClaireEgan.wordpress.com. Yeah, the transporting the gun was very interesting. Right. I, I would never have even thought of that. And realizing they have to have their gun. Yes. it's And because some of these are like molded and carved or they'll carve them up to fit their particular hands. That's amazing. Right. And these rifles are no joke. They are um, amazing to shoot. It's just really interesting how huh. how different they are from uh, just a regular twenty two. Now, I have... And I've obviously never seen it live, mm -hmm. but I have watched it on TV. And the cross-country skiing part is just boring, I have to say. But but when they do get in that range and they fire, I do get that, oh, are they going to hit it? Are they going to right. get it? So I can, I can get into it very quickly because I can understand. I didn't understand, obviously, all the technicalities that she was talking about mm -hmm. with the penalties and the... But, you got to hit the targets and you got to go fast. It's right. That's the bottom line. Right. And it's so hard to, yeah. to hold a rifle steady when your heart is racing that fast. So that's what, that's one thing I'm really glad Ben talked about is, is yeah. how you calm down in order to get the shots off because those are tiny targets to hit too. Right. Cause yeah. she was saying it was, the, she was comparing it to a CD and mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, they look so much, of course they look so much bigger on television. Right. Right. And it's because 50, there's no scale. Right. And it's 50 meters away. It, it's one of those fascinating sports that once you get into it or once you watch, I think it's, it's easy to get into Yeah, and see how exciting it is. I would like to try it actually, but I don't think anyone around me would want me to try it. But, no, but it does. I hope people watch it because it is actually kind of a, a it's different. I mean, you're never going to see this any other place. You know, the other reason to tune in to biathlon for these Olympic Games is that the great 
Ole Einar Bjorndalen is back. He is going, he's going to be at his seventh Olympics in Pyeongchang. And this guy is amazing. When we saw him in 2002, that was his, like his big year where he won the gold medal in every event he did. And then different distances. Yes, and different, team of- yeah, yeah, exactly. And then just for fun, he decided to enter the cross country 30 kilometer race because he could, and he finished like fifth or something. It was crazy. I'm going to have to. Now, doesn't he have the most medals of any winter Olympian? He does. He has um, 13 medals overall, and he has tied with uh, cross country ski legend Bjorn Dolly for eight gold medals. So he's going to try to add to his medal haul in uh, Pyeongchang, and he's going to do it. At age 44, which, you know, more props to him on that, right? Man. I mean, he's been seven Olympics. Seven Olympics in a brutal sport. Cross-country skiing is is really tough. And you got to be massively fit. But he's just, he's amazing. He pays attention to all of these details and he looks for everything. I was reading an article today how he has built... A, like a replica of the Pyeongchang course around his home. Yeah. And he was talking about, Oh, it was, that was really fascinating. He's like, I'm not going to tell you too much. Cause I want to keep it secret. Like you got to have that competitive edge. But, uh, what did he say? He said the, um, the stadium was pretty, Oh, he said that the course at Pyeongchang is going to be pretty hard. There's a lot of steep climbs and the shooting range is really windy. So it's going to be it's going to be a difficult race for anybody. So huh. it'll be really interesting to see how how wind affects the shooting and how uh, athletes can adapt and and that could really change the overall results at any given moment. Well, I you know I'm always going to cheer for the old man. <laughs> and and he's got a great announcer name, you know. Ole Aina Bjorndalen. Yeah. So good luck to everybody. Good luck, Claire. We're rooting for you. We're excited. uh, And it's going to be great. Also, the lovely Sarah Hendrickson, who was a guest on our show a couple weeks ago, made it to the Olympics. So she will be at Pyeongchang doing her ski jump. Yay, Sarah. So exciting. We will be rooting for you. And then in the United States, uh, the U.S. uh, figure skating championships is going on. And that's where the Olympic team will be chosen and our guest from our Sochi episode Nate Bartholomew is competing so good luck to you Nate you've got a you've got a tough one because only one U.S. Paris team gets to go this year but we're really excited you're trying again and uh, best of luck to you and your partner Dina Stellata and uh, we'll have Nate back on the show again to talk a little bit more about figure skating over the next few weeks so good luck everyone all right it is trivia time. What do you, do you got, have huh? a Do you have a biathlon trivia? Of course, question? I have a biathlon trivia question. Okay, okay. So you go first because I don't. Okay. So my biathlon trivia question for you is: Biathlon, in its current form, debuted in 1960 at the Squaw Valley Olympics. However, a form of it appeared at 1924 Chamonix, the first Winter Games, and it was also a demonstration sport in 1928, 36, and 48. What was this event called? So it had a different name, but it was basically a very shooting. similar sport. Yes. So it had shooting and skiing, but it had a different name. Yes. I don't even have a guess. All right. This was called military patrol. Oh. And it was actually, it was, it was interesting. So, so it would follow more of the, follow more of the military roots of the sport Uh, The military ski patrol event of 1924 was a precursor of the biathlon relay. So you had four four team members, and they skied 30 kilometers all together. And then midway through the race, they stopped, and three of them shot 18 times at a target that was 250 meters away. And every time they made a shot, they got 30 seconds taken taken off of their time. And so the final time was when the last person in the team crosses the finish line. Oh, you got to feel bad for that last person. Right. I'm like, come on, come on, get over. Okay, so here's my trivia question. We've been talking so much about what's happening with the Russian athletes, and Mm -hmm. some of them are starting 
to get approvals to compete as Olympic athlete from Russia. Okay. We're starting here. So, but this is not the first time Russian athletes have competed under a neutral flag. That would be, yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be in Albertville? Yes, it was. Do you, and you remember what they were called? The, weren't they like, weren't they just like the Olympic athletes? They weren't from Russia. So they, no, because it they, wasn't just Russia. It, it was, was a former so Soviet was, Union. Correct. So it was 1992 in Albertville. The Soviet Union had begun falling apart and the various what now have become independent countries um, competed together as the unified team. Oh, that's right. The unified team. But they marched under a neutral flag and did not have the uh, the anthem played. So this would have been the Ukraine, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, Belarus, um, Belarus. Yes. Latvia, all Lithuania. No, not the Baltics. Really? The Baltics were out of there faster than you could spit. They wanted nothing to do with it. The Baltics did not. So they were already their own countries. They were. Yeah. So both um, Barcelona and Albertville in 92. But since we're talking winter, it it was that. Now we are moving on to, we've got some emails. That's really so excited. Thank you, people. If you would like to email us, please drop us a line at info at olimfever.com. We would love to hear from you. So we've got a couple of emails this week. We have our first email is from Jacob. And Jacob is writing to us from Poland, which was also very exciting. And he was... Good thing, as I said to you, good thing I haven't insulted the Poles. So he was writing in about our ski jumping episode and wanted to correct some of our facts. He was talking about the the types of the modern ski jumping hill at the Olympics. Their normal hill, which is K90, and the large hill is K120. K90 is for both women and men, and K120 is only men and also the men's team event. And we had been talking about an older system uh, that's now changed because the jumps were getting too long for the hills and the style of jumping has evolved a bit and helped make the jumps longer. Correct. We had said K70 was normal and K90 was large, but they've gotten bigger right. since and, then, or longer. Right, and uh, Pyeongchang, they're calling it, is K- K98 and K125. So thank you for correcting us on that fact. And then he also mentions another thing is that the K point or red line is constructive point, a distance which the jumper has to achieve to guarantee himself 60 points for the distance and landing. And there shouldn't be, that shouldn't be a problem for a professional competitor. Further on the hill, you have HS, which means hill size. And that's usually blue, but sometimes it's also a red line. And after one jump above this distance, the jury of the competition has to think about shortening the length of the in-run to increase the level of safety in the competition. Landing there is risky because of the ground being close to completely flat area, but the best jumpers do it as they want to win the gold medal. Right, sort of, we, we talked a little bit to Sarah about overjumping a hill. Right. Uh, right. When she was so badly hurt, but yes. Right. So yeah, it seems like hill size, K-point, it does get confusing with the terminology because hill size is not actually the size of the hill right it's, it's the, the distance the distance of the the, the perfect jump which is so, which is interesting and that's got to change with does that change with the conditions of the day because yes. if it's windier you move that uh the seat up and down the the top of the hill to, to right. judge it for safety right and that that's... So yes, the some of those technicalities were confusing to research. Obviously, I made some mistakes on it, so I do I apologize and thank you, Jacob, for clearing uh, clearing that for us. Yes, but it is some of the terminology is confusing. But the bottom line is, if you stay on your skis and you go the furthest, you're going to win. Right. Jacob also wanted to talk about the participation of women at the games. He says, I mainly agree with you, but two points to mention in the discussion that lacked here are the number of competitors, which I think would remain really low through the years as it wasn't so popular at first. And that was one of the reasons why it wasn't on the Vancouver 2010 program. And as the women jump less than the men, 
Um, they have a longer in-run now, so they jump more or less the same distance, but earlier it wasn't so obvious to make. It wouldn't be so attractive for the audience at the Olympics, mainly for the TV viewers, which, you know, connects the money from the TV rights and wouldn't give any profit, which is a brutal system of today's competitions. Um, I'm also a fan of women's ski jumping like you, and I would prefer them to be started earlier, but unfortunately it wasn't, and we have to watch it as created. So thank you, Jacob. I pre we appreciate your email. And I got to say, uh, I also asked Jacob, you know, who, uh, what Polish athletes should we watch? And he said, um, ski jumping is actually where Poland has a really high chance of getting a medal. And oh. yeah, and uh, the one of the athletes uh, you should look for is Camille Storch. Um, I think I said that right. I actually watched him jump. I watched um, one of the ski jumping cup competitions this past weekend. So I recognized that name. And I got to tell you, America had better step up because... They had 25,000 people watching the ski jump competition. It was amazing. They were so excited. It was so much fun to watch because the crowd really bolstered everything. And you're like, this is, this is a cup competition, and there's a lot of them throughout the winter, but it's another sport that Europeans just really dig, and that makes it so much more fun to watch. So, But anyway, uh, Camille is the Olympic champion both on normal and large hill from Sochi. So this year he's back and he's got a really good chance to get some more medals. And um, Jacob also recommends looking at uh, Carolina Riemann Jarabeka, who is ski cross. And she had um, a bad crash a little while ago, but now she's making a comeback this year. So thank Excellent. you, Jacob. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's fun to know who else to watch for. So yeah, I love seeing athletes from countries that don't dominate win medals. And you, you learn something about the country. You learn something about what's important to them. We also had another lovely little message from Sandy, who said uh, she recently found the podcast because she's a huge Olympic nerd and wanted to say thank you for putting together our show. So thank you for that. Thank you, Sandy. That made our day. It did. It did. We really appreciate it. And once again, if you want to email us, we are at info at olimfever.com. That pretty much wraps it up for this episode of the show. Next week, we are going to talk with a couple of Olympic snowboard athletes. So we're looking forward to that. And we'll catch you back here next week. Stay in touch. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M-Fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at OlimFever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. One time I saw the U.S. canoe kayak folks in the airport, and I realized that it's not so bad after all having biathlon equipment. <laughs>